my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Today is, according to the church calendar, Christ the King Sunday. And this is a day that we remember that we do worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it's also a day to think about the nature of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and the character of our king. And our gospel reading helps us to do that. Luke's version of the crucifixion of Jesus. We see that Jesus is called here the king of the Jews. And we also see that Jesus is, of course, a crucified King and the irony of that. When I read this passage, I remembered that somebody else in Jesus' day was called the King of the Jews. And that was Herod, King Herod. Herod the Great, who ruled Palestine for 34 years. And he made his mark on Palestine. He was a great builder, he built amphitheaters, he built. Uh, Aqueducts. He built various shrines. He built seven palaces for himself. His greatest building project was, of course, the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, which was enormous, elaborate, and everybody who saw it was in awe of its majesty. And as I began thinking about Herod, I started reading a little bit more about him and looked at how he ended his life. We're seeing here how King Jesus ended his life. How did King Herod end his life? Well, it's obvious that Herod wanted to make sure that he went out in style. He purchased, not purchased, he was the ruler of Palestine. He took some land outside of Jerusalem about eight miles outside of Jerusalem, and built up this hill for his burial site. And he called it the Herodian. And he wanted to make sure that when he died, everybody could still see where he was buried as a reminder of his greatness. He arranged for his body to be carried throughout the streets after he died, to be carried throughout the streets on a golden platform a platform encrusted with jewels and draped in royal purple. He arranged for 500 servants to walk in this processional, processional with spices to mask the smell of decay. Well, that's how Herod wanted to go out in this world. That's how kings of this world go out. They, they want to display their greatness and their power and their majesty. Now, let's compare that to King Jesus at the end of Jesus' life, he set his eyes on the cross. I want us to think about the suffering of Jesus for a little bit this morning. And this is going to sound a little bit like a Good Friday sermon for the first part. We're going to think about the sufferings of our king because he willingly did this for our salvation. And the purpose this morning of the sermon, I really hope and pray that God would use this sermon to capture our hearts and minds for Christ 
even more, that our loyalty to Christ and our trust in Christ and our obedience to Christ would grow as we meditate on what he did for us, his suffering, and then we're going to look at the salvation that flowed from the suffering of Christ, our King. So let's think for a moment about his suffering. Jesus suffered unjustly. He went to trial, and actually various trials, there's more than one trial, and all of them were a sham. They were all unjust. His enemies falsely accused him. They told Pilate that he is, Jesus is telling people to not pay the tribute to Caesar. He's forbidding them to give, he's forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar, they said to Pilate in chapter 23, verse 2 of Luke. Well, what did Jesus say about paying tribute to Caesar? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So they were lying. They were making this up. They were pitting Jesus, of course, against the governmental powers. They said that Jesus is going around and he's claiming that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And Jesus was the King of the Jews, but he didn't go around proclaiming this publicly. He kept that a secret. He disclosed it only to his his, his followers, his closest followers. He never publicly proclaimed it. But that was a lie to paint him as the leader of an insurrection because insurrectionists ended up on a cross and that's what his enemies wanted to happen to him. But Jesus, as he went through this trial, he, he let these accusations, these lies, this injustice wash over him. And he was completely innocent. And Pilate even recognized it. Pilate says in Luke 23, 15, I don't find this man guilty. He's done nothing deserving of death. But Jesus' enemies don't give up and they whip up the crowds and Pilate, under this pressure of the crowds, acquiesces and finally gives the crowd and Jesus' enemies their wish. Crucify him. And Pilate released Jesus to be crucified and ordered Jesus Crucifixion. It was an unjust death. He suffered injustice. And let's think about briefly the physical suffering that our king went through for us. The gospel writers don't go into a lot of detail about the suffering of Jesus' crucifixion in terms of his physical pain that would, he would have experienced. Luke just mentions that when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So the gospel writers don't go into the details of crucifixion. Of course, many of the readers, the first century audience for the gospels would have known what crucifixion entailed. I, I think it's important for us just to briefly touch on it. We don't need to go into gory details, but just to remember the pain that Jesus suffered for us, for our salvation. Again, to gain a greater appreciation of his sacrifice. Some years ago, there was a pathologist named Dr. William Edwards, I believe he was from Mayo Clinic, who published a medical examination of the death of Jesus based on historical evidence regarding crucifixion practices in the first century. He published this report in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And here are some of the findings of Dr. Edwards. It says, I'm quoting here, Jesus was attached to the cross by spikes, 
five to seven inches long, driven into his wrist. One through both of his feet. The spikes may have hit a number of major nerves, and that would have resulted in excruciating fiery bolts of pain throughout his arms. By the way, the word excruciating comes from the Latin, which means out of the cross. He goes on, Jesus would have been suspended with much of his weight borne by his arms. His legs were bent under him. In classic symptoms of crucifixion, the position would have started to reduce his respiratory capacity, setting the stage for eventual asphyxiation. So the Romans designed crucifixion to be a slow, torturous death. They designed it to maximize pain. And Jesus willingly went through that for our salvation. That's how our king went out of this world. That's how he died. And then people mocked him. Add to all this the, the mockery and the taunting that went on as he was dying. Verse 35 tells us the people stood by watching. Now, perhaps the people here, Luke wants to make clear, are in silent sympathy with Jesus, but they're not going to speak up. But throughout the Gospel of Luke, it's the people kind of get what Jesus is about, and they're sympathetic oftentimes, and it's the rulers that don't quite understand what's happening. And they resist what God is doing in Jesus. So I think there's a note maybe here of, of an indication that, that these people watching were standing in silent sympathy, but they weren't speaking up. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers mocked him, coming and offering sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And one commentator said maybe the offering of this sour wine was kind of a parody of a king at a banquet, adding to the sort of the taunting and torment. So the rulers scoffed and the soldiers mocked. And now we see this criminal who's hanging next to Jesus. He joins in to the taunting, with the taunting. He says in verse 39, it says that he railed at Jesus or he blasphemed him. So this Evil towards Christ is, is kind of growing and, and spreading, and even one of the criminals next to him joins in. And the point I want to make, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus willingly suffered all this as our king. The, the torment, the taunting, the physical pain, the injustice, he went through all that willingly. He said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they were ready to, to fight for Jesus, he said, don't you know that I could call my Father in heaven and he would send tens of thousands of angels to deliver me? But he went through it willingly. On the cross, they taunted him and they said over and over, why don't you save yourself? He could have saved himself, but he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus makes that clear in this gospel. He came to seek and save the lost. He wasn't in it for himself. And then as Jesus got closer to the cross, he, he discloses more to his disciples about what's going to happen to him and why he's allowing this to happen to him. 
And in this gospel, the gospel of Luke, in the previous chapter, we've read chapter 23, in the previous chapter, chapter 22, verse 37, he says this to his disciples. I tell you, I think he's actually speaking here to, oh, it is, it is his, his disciples. I thought it was just Peter, but it's his whole disciples at this point, all of his disciples. In Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, he says, I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, and that's very important for Luke, especially who sees the, the death of Jesus through the lens of Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 speaks about the suffering servant of God. The, the, the righteous servant who would suffer for the sins of the people. And Jesus saw himself, he saw his death that way. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the suffering servant of God. It's a remarkable prophecy. You know, even modern, modern day Jews who reject Jesus as Messiah, they have to try to make some sense of Isaiah 53 because of the level of detail in the suffering of an individual for the sins of humanity. And they have ways to kind of get around that, but it's, it's difficult. And um, what Isaiah 53, 12 says is this. Jesus quoted, after he said, the scripture must be fulfilled in me, he says this. He poured out, speaking about the suffering servant, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Don't we see that happening here at the cross? The very thing that Jesus says Isaiah 53, 12 is about. Numbered with the transgression, transgressors. He's hung between two thieves, pouring out his soul to death, making intercession for the transgressors, praying for them. And the whole point is that he's bearing the sins of many people. So we see Jesus in his suffering. But now let's think about Jesus on the cross, our King, saving us. And we can see his acts of salvation through the words that he says on the cross here in Luke's account. You know, what Luke reports Jesus saying is unique to Luke. What we get here in these final words of Jesus are are nowhere else in any of the other Gospels. So let's look at what Jesus says here. In verse 34, he says these It's just astonishing words when he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Praying for the very people who are torturing and mocking him. And this shows us, brothers and sisters, I think this shows us that that no one really is outside of the reach of the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. No matter how far gone we think somebody might be, Here's Jesus praying for the very people who are putting him on the cross, and he's asking that God would forgive them. I don't know if there are people in your life who you think they're just too far gone, and God can't reach them. Well, I think this suggests otherwise, that God's grace and mercy and forgiveness are much wider than we can imagine. Maybe some of these folks did turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. You know, there is that scene, is it in the Gospel of Matthew, when the centurion at witnessing the way that Jesus died says, truly this man, or surely this man must be the Son of God? Let's not give up on people. Let's not give up on ourselves. The cross shows us the wideness of the mercy and forgiveness of God. The second saying that's unique to Luke 
The second saying of Jesus on the cross is this beautiful promise that Jesus makes to the penitent thief. This, this thief says to the other thief who's joined in the mockery and taunting of Jesus, he says, wait a second, we're the guilty ones. We're, we're suffering for the crimes that we committed. Now, we would say that the crime doesn't probably fit the punishment. No, they're being tortured to death. But they were guilty, and he understood that they were guilty. And he says, wait a second, we are guilty. But this man has done nothing deserving death. He's innocent. And then he turns to Jesus, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus makes this promise. And this is a promise for every person who dies trusting in Jesus. Who dies looking to Jesus as their Savior, as their King, as the one who wins them forgiveness with God. This promise that Jesus makes to the penitent thief is for anyone who turns to him in faith and trust. When they die, the promise is today, today, you will be with me in paradise. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul says. So it's the thief who gets into the kingdom while the religious rulers are mocking the king of, the king of God. And, and that's classic Luke. The outsider becomes the insider. And the people who are supposed to get it, the sophisticated ones, the religious rulers, they don't understand, they don't want to understand what God is doing in Jesus Christ. But the thief is humble enough to admit his guilt and to turn to Christ. I wonder if there's somebody here like the penitent thief who needs to admit, I'm guilty. I'm a lawbreaker. I deserve God's punishment. I wonder if there's somebody here humble enough like the penitent thief to look to the provision that God has you on the cross of his son Jesus Christ the forgiveness of sins and to trust the promises of Christ that when you turn to him you are forgiven and there is the promise of eternal life so on the cross Jesus our king suffers willingly but his suffering is for our salvation how does this work that the death of Jesus wins us the forgiveness of sins how does that actually, what sort of transaction takes place? How, how can we make some sense of it? Well, there's a mystery surrounding this, okay? But there are some useful models and some useful illustrations to think about. It. You know, Jesus said in the Gospels that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And a ransom is a payment. So some theologians have thought about Jesus' death as a payment for our sin, a sacrificial payment. And somehow at the cross, the, the justice of God is satisfied so that we can stand right before him. I shared uh, some weeks ago at my Wednesday night Bible class a conversation. This is a true conversation between a Muslim and a Christian. They were friends. Muslim's man was, is Nabil, and his Christian friend was David. Now, Muslims have a hard time. They don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. And they don't believe that Jesus' death would have paid for our sins. They have a hard time understanding this because of their conception of who Jesus is and what sin is. And so Nabil was wrestling with this, and he said to his friend David, he said, David, 
it, it, you're, what you're telling me is like saying that some random guy is going to take a dollar out of his pocket and pay off the national debt. He said one dollar cannot pay off trillions of dollars of debt. Jesus' death can't pay for all the sins of the world. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And his, his friend David, the Christian, said, well, wait a second. Let's think of it a little bit differently. He said a better analogy would be this. Say a son has stolen from his father's business. And the son feels guilty. He comes to his senses and realizes what he's done. He feels guilty. And he goes back to his father, the business owner. And he says, listen, I've stolen from you. Will you forgive me? The father forgives him. But there's still a debt that has to be paid. The, the, balance, the balances, the account balances still have to be settled. And the father of the son has every right to pay off those debts for his son. That's fair. And David went on and he said, we're all the son. We are all God's children. We've, we've all sinned, though, against our heavenly father. But at the cross, God pays our debt himself. Because Jesus isn't just some ordinary random guy. Jesus is the son of God. He is one with God. And so at the cross, God is satisfying his own demands for justice. So it's not like somebody using a dollar bill to pay off a trillion dollars of debt. It's like paying off a trillion dollars of debt with an infinite bank account. Because the value of the Son of God is infinite. The value of his life. Well, when he said that, which was brilliant, I don't think I could have come up with that on the spot. Nabil said, why would God do that? And David said, because he loves you. And he said, why does he love me? I'm a sinner. And he said, because he's your father. And he's a father who loves you so much that he's willing to do this, to win you back. And Nabil's heart was being shifted and changed as he encountered the love of God at the cross. And now he's put his faith in Jesus Christ. But this is how the kingdom of God grows. You know, brothers and sisters, we hear a lot in our culture today about the divisions between the elites, the haves and the have-nots, the divisions between the races, the divisions between those who are poor and those who have great wealth, those who have a lot of education and those who have very little, and it seems that this divide is growing more and more and more. At the cross of Jesus, though, people can come together. At the cross of Jesus, the ground is level. We all can recognize by the grace of God, like the thief, that we're guilty and we need salvation. And we can be one at the cross of Christ. This is a kingdom for people who are overlooked. This is a kingdom for people who feel unloved. This is a kingdom for those who will never make the A-list, who won't get invited to the right parties or be applauded by important people. And it's a kingdom for those who are climbing their way to the top and maybe they've gotten to the top and they realize it's kind of empty here. Emptier than they thought. It's a kingdom for all people who will simply turn to Christ and cry out for mercy. So 
the kingdom of Herod is still with us, don't you think? The kingdom of those who promote themselves and the kingdom of power and prestige and the kingdom of displaying your greatness and extravagant wealth, it's still with us and it's seductive, but let's not be taken in by that kingdom. Let's not be fooled. Let's keep our eyes on this king who suffered and saved us. Let's keep worshiping him. Let's remain loyal to him. Let's give ourselves afresh to the work of this kingdom. You know, in my reading about Herod, I found out one other thing about his burial place. Hardly anybody goes there today. He was the most powerful guy in Palestine at the time. But nobody hardly sees and goes to his burial site. It's just a minor curiosity. How many thousands of people go to where Jesus was buried? Year after year after year, they go there to worship this king of great love because he's captured people's hearts and minds, and he continues to do that. Has he captured your heart and mind? Let's stay loyal to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to lay down your life and to build a kingdom of people from every background, every tribe, every language, and bring them into the kingdom of God, the loving Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that you will draw us closer and closer to you. Help us to become more loyal to you and committed to advancing this kingdom. I pray if there's anybody here who's not been like the penitent thief, who's not turned to you for mercy, I pray that you will draw them to you and they'll look to you and trust your promises, Lord Jesus. It's in your name I pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.